0: Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we normally take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. Uh, My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And, uh, again, uh, if you've stuck around from last week, you know we discussed Jurassic Park and had a wonderful conversation with our guest, Ben. Um, uh, So this week, we decided that we were going to talk about uh, a particular decade of Spielberg films. Now, um, in the last iteration of the book, Lincoln did come out. So now there are two decades in which um, Spielberg doesn't have a film in the book. Uh, But... At the time, it was when Lincoln was in. This was the 2000s was the decade that was overlooked by uh, our piece, our 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 book that guides us through our podcasts. And so, we decided to look at the 2000s, look at the seven feature films that he directed, and uh, like we did with uh, Fincher, we decided to do a ranking, a a definitive ranking of Spielberg in the 2000s. Does Does that sound about right to you, Ian?
1: Yeah, and I think we we have sort of unofficially dubbed
0: this his underrated decade. Yeah, definitely underappreciated. Um, Yeah. So, uh, and so full disclosure, and I know you you tend to hear my voice a lot at the top of the episodes. Um, Maybe it's just because I'm an actor and I talk and that's just my thing. Uh, However, this is the end of my first week of teaching online, and it has been a great week, but a long week and a tiring week for me. So I'm going to go ahead and hand over the reins of the show today to my compatriot, Ian Woodington. Ian, why don't you take us away? Oh, thank you, sir. Um, so we
1: enjoyed doing the David Fincher one so much that these might become a regular staple. I don't know how often we'll do them, but um, maybe, I don't know, every 10 episodes or so you might get one of these. Does that sound about fair?
0: Yeah, something like that. I, I know, uh, yeah, it's just fun to to look at a, a either an entire piece of work or, or a, a time frame and really kind of, you know, dig in and and see what was going on with a with a director or an actor or whoever we seem to be looking at that week. Yeah, I totally agree.
1: Yeah, no, and I and that's that's one of my favorite parts of, of watching films is taking a look at a filmmaker and seeing how they grow and evolve and what sort of themes that they're exploring and how they how they expand on certain things that are important to them, as we know with Spielberg, broken families are a, are a huge part of uh, the films that he makes, and and that's no different in this decade as well. So, uh, the 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 2000s were were a pretty big decade for him, especially as a producer. He was producing such things as the two Eastwood Iwo Jima films. He was producing uh, the Transformers franchise. I mean depending on how you feel about that. And he's also did memoirs of a geisha, which I'm I'm really fond of. Also a huge success for him was uh under his DreamWorks banner with Shrek. Um and that mammoth franchise. Um DreamWorks was also trading hands quite a bit during this decade between distribution deals with the Walt Disney Company and setting up distribution deals with with people like Universal and Paramount. But um the, the, the biggest thing that we should talk about with him as a producer, just really quickly before we dive into the list, is the number three rated TV show of all time, according to IMDb, just below Planet Earth uh, 1 and 2. Uh, I believe 2 is in the number one position and Planet Earth 1 is in the number two position, but Band of Brothers was uh, a really important piece of television in this decade, and really between this and... And the, some of the other things that HBO were were doing, like The Wire and Sopranos, really set the tone for the sort of age of television
0: that we're living in now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I know I was and I was so skeptical and I do not know why of watching Band of Brothers. Uh, I think maybe I just thought it's. You know, so, you know. Sometimes you just you'll build a narrative in your head. You just you just assume you know what it's going to be. And I think maybe coming off of the heels of Saving Private Ryan, which is a great movie, I just thought, oh no, he's it's just going to be the same thing. And I I don't know why I thought that. I just you know, oh it's him, it's World War II. I I've seen this, and it's not that. It is an entirely different thing. And I really like the it, the the scope that it takes. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that. I had uh, a
1: sort of gut reaction to it as well. It was like, oh, do I really want to spend 10 hours on him just retreading Private Ryan? And, of course, I couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, it took me, I would say, eight years from when it was released to finally watch it, and I, I've watched it three times all the way through since. I think it's a absolutely stunning piece of television and launched the careers of uh, a couple of, of famous faces, including, but not limited to, both Michael Fassbender and... Um, Tom Hardy, both have small roles. I think Hardy appears in one episode and Fassbender appears in about two or three.
0: And what's the... Uh, I can't think... What's uh, the guy who's in The Wire... Or not The Wire. Um, In Homeland. Uh, he, oh,
1: Damien, Damien Lewis, of course. Yeah, he's yeah. fantastic. And his relationship with Ron Livingston in that is really the the heart and soul of, of <laughs> yeah, Ron, the series. Ron
0: Livingston is in that. That's, that's he's, crazy. He's phenomenal in it. He, I oh, totally. He, I
1: think he does a really great job. He is... I'm not going to say he's underrated, but he's certainly, I think, undervalued.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, I think HBO helped enrich his career between his bit, his his part in that, and his part in um, Boardwalk Empire. HBO oh, exactly. gave him work
1: for quite some time. He's he's much more than just Office Space if people That's are true. willing to give him a
0: chance. Yeah. Now, did you see The Pacific? I've still not seen The Pacific. Okay, and it's good. And 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 again, I think for me, even even after having seen Band of Brothers. When the Pacific came out, I was still I was hesitant. I'm like, wait, now what are you gonna do? Is this gonna be? Is this gonna be good? Haven't you told what you wanted this? Haven't you said what you wanted to say? And and it's, it's not as good, but it is still good. That's
1: yeah. That's the the general consensus that I've heard, and I had the same feeling. You know, comparing Private Ryan to Band of Brothers, I was like, well, Terrence Malick made the definitive Pacific War film when he made Thin Red Line, so what what is this really going to bring to the table it's still on my radar but it's a it's a little further down the list as yeah. honestly i still haven't done the sopranos which is wow embarrassing to say wow
0: that you should be embarrassed that's tough i that's i am a little beat. bit
1: sopranos sopranos and boardwalk empire are way higher on my list
0: than um you, you can put boardwalk empire down a few notches is it if is it really not that good it's it's fine it definitely. I think each season it goes down a little bit. We we watched it all. We got through it, and by the end I was like, yeah, okay, okay. I
1: think the th- the, the three leads and Scorsese's perform uh, Scorsese's involvement are really what is is the the hook for me in that because it's Michael Shannon, Kelly McDonald, and and Steve Buscemi.
0: Yeah. Right, but you yeah. get um um. Oh God, he's one of my favorite. Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg is in it too. Oh, I, oh, I love him too. He, he's great, and he's a regular. He's God. He's not. He's not Capone because that's that's um that's Steven Graham. But ah, shit. I'm he he he's a he's a he's a gangster of some kind. He might be Meyer Lansky. I don't know. He's somebody. But yeah, he's great. He's great in it. Awesome. Well, there you have it. There's a a little bit of Spielberg as a
1: producer. Now we're going to dive into Spielberg as a director and try to bring you our definitive ranking of Spielberg in the 2000s. So, Adam, do you want to start with your
0: number seven? Well, do we want to do we want to tell people what the seven films are? Do we want to go? and just Yeah,
1: that's that's probably a good idea. Let's let's set this up, set this up properly.
0: Sorry, I'm so used to you taking the lead. and, and uh... <laughs> It's all good. It's all good. Um, so I believe I have these chronologically correct. Um, uh, in 2001, we got AI, artificial intelligence. In 2002, we got Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can. In 2004, we got The Terminal. In 2005, we had War of the Worlds and Munich. And then in 2008 we got Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And those were the seven feature films that Spielberg directed in the 2000s. There it is. Okay, so you want my you want my 7. Yeah, let's let's dive straight in, man. And we'll save the conversation for the the lower the, the higher ranked, the the better the ranking.
1: Yeah, as as we did in 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 Fincher. Perfect.
0: Uh my number 7 is AI. Oh,
1: so is mine. Okay. Now, can um, I guess what your number six is? Because I'm pretty sure your number six is probably the same as mine, and we can kind of discuss these together. Because I'm still... If if yours is the same as mine, I'm not 100% that I'm correct.
0: Okay. My six is the terminal.
1: Oh, it's... Okay, wow. That was, that was unexpected. My number yeah. six is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Okay,
0: so let's, let's talk about AI.
1: All right. Uh, so AI, this is my... This is my first watch on AI is is watching it for this this ranking. Um still really conflicted about it. Um I now, was so hesitant to watch it because I am such a diehard Kubrick fanboy that uh yes. I I felt like there was that, that that this maybe should have been like Napoleon and maybe just been left alone. Uh it, so in doing a little bit more research about it, it, it turns out that it seems like Kubrick had in mind that he wanted Spielberg to direct this as early as about 1985 and that he thought he would be better as producer and after seeing E.T. that this is something that was much more within Spielberg's wheelhouse. And then of course over over several years and some setbacks and some issues with the script and, and waiting for the technology to catch up... Uh, and, and Kubrick continuing to sort of push the idea that he wanted Spielberg to direct this. Spielberg eventually in the mid-90s convinced him, no, 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 you should, you should do this. This could be something different for you. Um, and then, of course, it got put on the back burner while he did Eyes Wide Shut. And unfortunately, we lost Kubrick uh, in the post-production of Eyes Wide Shut. And it sort of reverted back to Spielberg in wanting to do justice and, and honor Kubrick's memory and, and wanting to honor his original vision for this. So with that in mind, I mean, it kind of softened me to the idea a little bit that it's it's okay that Spielberg made this film, but I still, there's, it's such a mixed bag of a movie.
0: Oh, it really is. And, you know, I mean, I even knew back, because, so this is my, this is my second watch. I know that I watched this as soon as this came out um, to be, to be rented or whatever. I remember, I, I remember I had the VHS of this. I remember watching it um which would have put me at maybe 12 or 13 when I watched this for the first time. Um I can't say that I remembered anything about it. Like I remembered who was in it, but like in terms of really what happened, I didn't know. The last 45 minutes of this movie to me was a complete like Oh, I clearly didn't remember what happened in this movie. Um I I know this this I I end up saying this a lot, but I just didn't care about Anybody, and it's weird because I, I I watched this with with Melissa and we were we were stone cold sober. Uh, Stella was watching the uh, the last part of it with us, and man, I I gotta tell you, I I almost fell asleep like multiple times, and it's crazy because even even at his weakest, I still think that Spielberg. He, he's a captivating director, and and what he puts on the screen, even if it's not the most entertaining, it's still, it still it can draw your eye. Like I, I usually find myself sucked into a storytelling. I know we've I I think we've both at different points ragged on Hook, but like even Hook, there are, are times where it's like I still get sucked into it. I'm still totally there. I love the swashbuckling side of it, and I get that it's a, it's more of a fun family movie. I don't well, know Hook what is the-
1: grounded by some incredible performances, even as much as I as I rag on it. I mean, the kids are all great, especially Robin Williams' kids. They're, both of them are amazing, and I love, I absolutely love the dynamic between Hook and Smee. I oh, mean, yeah. I mean, the urban legend is that they went to Spielberg, and they're like, hey, we want Hook and Smee to kind of be an old married gay couple who are kind of over it sexually and are just these bitter old queens that are just, you know death by a thousand cuts with each other yeah and spielberg went no this is a family film you absolutely cannot do that but if you look at the film that's kind of what they're doing anyway oh sure which which i really respect
0: and so you know i'm watching i'm watching ai and you know we get that little we get the intro with william hurt and it's all exposition but i'm kind of like okay i'm here i'm with it I, i get what we're doing um and then we get introduced to the, the the family, and and they clearly have, they you know their son is got some kind of a disease, and he's he's definitely in some kind of a medically induced coma, cryogenic kind of containment thing. Um, and so when when Haley Joel Osment comes home, I want to ask you a question: Do you do we believe that something happens with the mother? that actually gets her to believe that this kid can be her son because everything that he is doing just seems creepy and void of human emotion to me. And I get that he calls her mommy once when it switches, but at no point does this seem like a real kid. Like looks wise, sure, but the, the emotional uh, maturity, the, 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 the lack of any kind of real connection, it just seems, it all seems so fake and, Melissa, who was a sweet, caring, my wife, who's a very sweet and caring person at one point, went, just said, why don't they just get rid of them? And I'm like, I don't know. And I realized that we're supposed to feel this connection between the mom and Haley Joel Osment, but I, I never did. I never felt it. Yeah, there's a, uh,
1: I'm i am 100% on board with that because there's a lot of things in this film that happen almost too quickly. So here's, here's my major problem. I was going to try and save it to the end of our discussion with AI, but we're, we're pretty much... We're pretty much at that point of discussing it anyway, is the film is both kind of bloated and over long. and at the same time, considering how long it was in development, it feels sort of undercooked. And this is it, I'm in this weird sort of paradox where the film is, like I said, it's it's too long. But also not long enough. It it, w- it feels like it would almost be better served as a miniseries where you'd have time to really flesh a lot of these ideas out and flesh out a lot of the technology, especially and and our connection to these characters, which is something that I feel like when we get to Minority Report is something that that Spielberg did really improve on, especially with the environment in the world, because he he had a, a team of, of scientists and sort of uh, a. a think tank of of tech people who helped him sort of steer the ship in the right direction of oh this stuff really could exist in the year 2054 when minority report is set which is definitely kind of missing from ai and i know that that's not really what the movie is about it's about the journey of this this quote-unquote child but there's there's a real disconnect for me well and can we not just the characters but even though the world that they inhabit
0: well, and that's, so that's the thing is, is it does introduce like when we, we kind of, um, when we, I don't want to spend too much time on this movie cause I don't think it's very good and I don't want to give it that much time, but so we get introduced to uh, Jude Law and his whole thing where he's basically framed, uh, for a murder and, uh, there's that, what is, uh, what is that town? There's like a, an area in which he kind of inhabits and I don't know what it's called, but anyways, um, so that's where they are. And then we get introduced to the flesh farm and uh, uh, the um, or the the what is it called? The, the place where Brendan Gleeson is running this show where robots are getting. Yeah, no, no,
1: no. It's it's yeah, it's the, the, the flesh circus, the flesh something or other yeah. like that. Um, but and, those those vignettes, those sort of scenes, those to me feel like they could be whole episodes of a miniseries.
0: Yeah and and I found them interesting but then yeah I was very but not really connected and then I I will just straight up say once uh um Jude Law and Halo Joel Osment end up in that ship going to Manhattan and uh they get there and then William Hurt comes back in and then they dive into the water and then there's aliens and then he gets to live one more day with his mom I I, I was what's a word beyond bored because whatever that yeah, is. Yeah, I am I'm 100% out of the movie at that point
1: when I, it, when it cuts to 2000 years later and I guess doing some reading, I thought they were aliens as well. I guess they're they're like an evolved version of the robots, the mecha as they're called. Oh. But that's that's not even really made all that clear. This is no, what I'm it talking is not. about is the film is is somewhat underdeveloped considering that it was in development for yeah. I, I think uh, I think Kubrick bought the rights to this around the same time that he was making a Clockwork Orange. So, from let's just say 1971 to 2001, it was when it was made. Thirty years, and yet the film doesn't really feel like it's had thirty years worth of development.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's just thirty years of sitting on the shelf. Yeah.
1: So before we move on, did you read the short story "Super Toys Last All Summer Long" by Brian Aldiss? I did not. Okay, so it, it is available online if, you, if you're interested, and it's, it is really, really short. Um, there's an interesting idea in that, which they don't explore in the movie, where uh, I think they mention very briefly in the movie that there's an overpopulation problem, but that is really at the forefront of the short story, and what they have is they have a lottery to see which couples can have a child, and I know that's been explored in, in some other films, but that is a far more interesting concept to me than, oh, we've got already got a kid, but he's in some sort of cryostasis for some disease that we don't have a cure for right now. Yeah, and that sure. is very much at the forefront of the D- David the robot's mind is that he will be replaced potentially one day, which yeah, is pretty, why he has such a connection to his mommy.
0: Yeah. I'm pretty sure they exposition dump that, that uh, lottery and overpopulation right at the top of the movie, and then I don't think they ever discuss it again.
1: Yeah, that's that's very much at the the forefront of the short story and as I said to me a much more compelling
0: story. I will just say thank God this was on Prime.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't paying for this. Yeah.
0: So so okay, so so your 6 was Crystal Skull and, and my your six, 6 was The Terminal. Okay, so my 5 is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull.
1: All right, I was expecting this to be at the bottom of the pile for you, and I was honestly, I was expecting it to be at the bottom of the pile for me as well, just because well, of uh, the sort of negative way that this film is treated in and amongst Indiana Jones fans. Now I know you're not an Indiana Jones fan. You don't have that same sort of nostalgia for them that I do. Did you not grow up with them? Did you not no, see them when you were when you were young?
0: No, I did not no i I definitely okay, came so... I came to the trilogy much later. I mean, like college. Oh wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so that's you probably have the same reaction to these films that I do to something like the John Hughes movies where they just don't resonate with me and I didn't see, see them and, at what yeah, I think I, I, is the
0: necessary age. I feel like I grew up with the John Hughes movies, so I definitely feel more of a kinship to those. And I and yeah, so I I think when I think of Indiana when I think of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, to me and cuz and I I've only seen I've seen Raiders twice, and I've seen uh, Temple of Doom and Last Crusade once. Um, not because I don't like them, they're just not my cup of tea. And I'm sure at some point I will revisit all of them. So to me, Crystal Skull felt like something that really fit into that world. So I think when I popped it on, I kind of knew what I was getting into. And this was something we watched start to finish with Stella, who found it very fun and very entertaining. And I think... and. That's totally a, that's a parental bias for sure. But there was something just knowing that I don't have to think that hard. It was a ridiculous movie. And part of that, you know, like the whole, um, they're driving, the, the, that whole weird battle in the cars, uh, you know, like fucking Shia LaBeouf. Listen to this sentence. Shia LaBeouf is having a moving sword fight with Kate Blanchett. That's a thing that I can say that happened in this movie. Um, And I don't want to take anything away from that, because that is a, a
1: bizarre sentence, but that's, despite the whole, him surviving the blast at the beginning, in the fridge, honestly, that is the moment that pulls me out the most. I mean, people go on about, oh god, now there are aliens in Indiana Jones movies. Well, if you think about it, he is a fantasy character. He is dealt with, you know, a thuggy cult, which, yes, is based in reality, and he is dealt with a lot of religious iconography and seeing that sort of come to life. And I don't want to get into a religious debate about whether the Ark of the Covenant was something that actually existed or whether there is actually a Holy Grail out there. But it, it makes sense. It is the next sort of logical step in this character's evolution. If, if we're going to age him in real time, there was 19 years between these two films. So now we've got to advance from the late thirties into the late fifties and if you think about where America was at that time you know there was the Red Scare and the fear of communism and that sort of started to manifest itself in in science fiction and movies you had films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Day the Earth Stood Still which substituted this sort of red fear for aliens and the aliens stood in for for communism so that all of that I'm fine with that makes sense. What I really despise about this film is that now we're in an age of CG, whereas in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they had to do pretty much everything practical. And that chase, in particular, feels so green screen to me that I'm just like, this. this it's the same problem that I have with the the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Everything is just too clean and too... You know, there's, there's, oh, there's yeah. a, there's a, a smoothness to everything, yeah. which I don't associate with those films. And I, I don't associate with Indiana Jones either. I mean, it's, it's Harrison Ford out there doing his thing, doing all the stunts and everything is as real and as practical as they can possibly make it. And there is, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the stunts team because I'm sure they did a mountain of work, but it's oh, just, yeah.
0: it feels too clean and too CG. Oh, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Um and i i think in another and you know and it's funny because usually in, in a film that is essentially grounded in realism um even though we're dealing with some fantastical aspects you know indiana jones is a real person we these are real people in the movie it's not you know any there's no superheroes there's no Alien, well, aliens at the end, but I mean, what I mean is, we're we're in a we're in a re- the real world, and yeah, there there's something about it that I, there was that practical, tangible aspect of an Indiana Jones movie that we're not really getting, um, and for whatever reason, that didn't seem to bother me as much, uh, and maybe it's just that I, it wasn't it wasn't that high up on you know my my pedestal, and I wasn't I wasn't too concerned with. Well and that's that's the right word as well as having this character
1: and and this world on a pedestal is definitely uh part of the problem for for a lot of people. <laughs> very true. That's that's very true. So I you might be interested to know that uh when they were talking about making a fourth film that Frank Darabont submitted a complete screenplay for free without being solicited for it and I'm I am desperate to know how much better Frank Darabont's film would have been than, than David Capp's.
0: I, I mean, it, that definitely is an interesting thing. I, I, I yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know that.
1: I mean, he is, he is a, tr- I, I don't think he's a fabulous director. I think he's a pretty average director, but as far as a screenwriter goes, I think he's, he's solid. I think he could have brought something much more interesting to this franchise. I have a couple of little, uh, Box office facts. Just because I was I was searching for interesting things to say about this movie because I don't have that many. Sure, but uh, I thought it was interesting that um, so I so I have the Rotten Tomatoes, which I I think I mentioned to you briefly off off mic on when we were discussing another episode. But this has a seventy eight percent critical on Rotten Tomatoes and a fifty four percent audience, which both of those seem very
0: high to me. Well, I think what it my guess is that i think critics saw this and maybe maybe thought what i did like this just it's it's in that same world of the movies and it's not it's not much of a thinker and then you could tell but the audience score i'm surprised not a little bit lower for the for die like for diehard indiana jones fans
1: yeah i mean that's that that's that's fair um Budgetary things though was something that struck me as as really interesting as well. So this film did $791 million worldwide on a $185 million budget, which just seems, you know that a lot of that went to Lucas Spielberg and Harrison Ford. Oh uh, yeah cause sure cuz that right. that budget for for this film I mean even for an effects heavy film like this seems a really unnecessary number so to put it in perspective Last Crusade which came out in 1989 this this movie had four times the budget that Last Crusade did and its budget to to box office ratio Crusade Last Crusade did 10 times its budget whereas this did for and about a quarter of his budget, which I know we've got twenty years in between, and there's there's inflation and things like that, but it goes to show, it goes to show me anyway, that you don't need these bloated, insane budgets in order to craft something spectacular and and engaging.
0: Oh, I again, I I feel like we we know each other well enough, and i I would agree with I would agree with you a hundred percent. You know, and I feel like. I feel like directors need to challenge themselves more. I mean, even if even if to say, "Hey, this is my budget. Why don't you cut that in half and let's see what I can make?" You know. Yeah. Cause... No. I,
1: I, there's there's definitely a lot of complacency that happens with these, yeah. quote unquote, big big budget directors. I would love to see somebody like. I mean, we've talked about our fears with Denis and and Nolan not going back to to the things that. That made them great directors, but even people like Michael Bay, someone like him, I would love to see him stripped of a massive budget and be like, no, you've got to make this thing for $10 million. Let's see if there's actually a good director in there that can operate
0: without all this palatial bullshit around him. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, I, I, would, I think that'd be a very, very interesting experiment to see.
1: I mean, I know he's tried some smaller films like that, that Benghazi movie and the pain and glory, but even those are still pretty goddamn big movies. Well, with pain and in glory, comparison to
0: with pain and glory and I haven't seen it or uh, pain and gain, pain and gain, pain and gain. There you go. That's, um, you know, I mean, I mean, half of your budget there is going to the rock and, and, uh, fucking Mark Wahlberg. I mean, it's just a different kind of big budget movie. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs>
1: If you're if you're ready to move on from, from Indiana Jones, because I don't think we need to, to pay him that much more attention in a film that some fans would call a, a raging dumpster fire.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds so, that sounds about right. So
1: your number sorry, your number six was the terminal. Yes. Your number five was Indiana Jones. My number five is War of the Worlds. Okay.
0: All right. Um so are are we to my number four? We are to your number four. Okay, so before we get to my number four, um, do you mind if I, uh, there's just, and I know you know this, and maybe our maybe our listeners do too, but I just wanted to, to say that all seven of these movies have three things in common. Uh, although I'm sure there might be many more things too, but one thing I wanted to point out was that uh, all of these films have the same editor, cinematographer, and composer.
1: And that would be John Williams doing the score, uh, Kaminsky, uh, Janusz Kaminsky, yeah? Mm-hmm. as cinematographer and then Michael Kahn as the editor. And they they sh- a few of them share the same DP as well with Rick Carter, but he did change out his director of photography a couple of times in amongst these movies.
0: Yeah, um, and and obviously, I mean uh, with with Michael Kahn and Yanis and Kaminsky, you know, uh, both of them have won Oscars under Spielberg in the past uh, for uh, Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. And I'm sure when we get to those episodes, we'll talk more about them. Um, and obviously, John Williams, I mean, the guy, the guy is is responsible for some of the best and worst and memorable and irritating scores uh, of all time. And and that's actually, I think, that's a real credit to say that you know, you know, this is the guy who did the score to Jurassic Park and also some very iconic scores from the 70s. And I, I mean, you know, he's. The guy, For better or worse, the guy's a legend, and I don't want to talk really, I don't even want to say too much about any of them. I just wanted to point out the fact that um, Spielberg really does work with the same people quite a bit. Well, when, when you
1: develop a shorthand with somebody, it's hard to, to sort of break away from that when you know that you're going to be able to, to craft something great together without having to do a lot of the work of getting to know each other up front. So I think I want to say Michael Kahn has done something like 29 movies with him.
0: Yeah, that's a, I, I would totally believe it. I would absolutely believe that. And if, if you've
1: got that kind of shorthand with an editor, there's no reason to, to deviate from that. Now, you mentioned Schindler's List. This might be a good opportunity to talk about, as we have done on other Spielberg episodes, we've talked about his knocking out to, to a huge features in the same year. So he's done this multiple times. 1993 was the first time with Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Did it again in 97 with Amistad and the sequel to Jurassic Park The Lost World. Uh, he would do it again and we'll we'll talk about it a little bit more as we go through this episode. He'd do it twice this decade with in 02 with Catch Me If You Can and uh, and Minority Report 2005 with War of the Worlds and Munich and then he would do it again at the beginning of the next decade 2011 with with War Horse. And uh, his his first animated feature, The Adventures of Tintin. Now, I wanted to put to you which of these two knockout huge films in one year do you think is the best double feature?
0: Now, do you mean what two do I, are, do I think are the best, like the best two films? Or what, what do I think would make the best double feature?
1: Well, I think... Well, we'll we'll break it down into, into three categories. So I think we can both agree that the actual best of these are Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. I don't think there's any real debate there. Yeah. Now I would say which to which is your favorite, and then which do you think actually make the best double feature?
0: Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can.
1: Is that is that to both?
0: No, because I I, th- I think Jurassic Park and Schindler's List are are the the, the knockdown dragout best two like. You know, I can't believe he made those two films in a year. And
1: but I mean, if you're actually going to watch the two back to back, I mean, as a as a double feature, something that you would yes, actually yes, pair if, and yes, if I was oh, going to, but if, okay.
0: yes, if I was going to watch it as a double feature, I would do Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can.
1: Now I would say my my favorite. I'm with you on the favorite thing that Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can are the probably the as far as if you're going to do two together, they're probably more watchable than trying to pair Schindler's List with Jurassic Park.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's 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 a little heavy.
0: That is, that is,
1: yep. So anyway, we come to we come to your number four.
0: Yeah, yep, yeah, and you're not gonna like it. It's going.
1: Oh man, that's harsh. That's hard to hear. I know, I know. What's your number four? Uh, my number four is the terminal. Okay. All right, that was my six. So the terminal was a movie that I. Honestly, didn't think much of the first time I saw it, and probably would be further down on this list. But oh, I found that over the last decade, it's a movie that I've I've revisited multiple times, and it's really it's really grown on me. Now, I think what your argument is going to be is that it's probably too
0: sentimental. No, there are probably no, aspects of it that feel too forced. Um, it, no, it's not that. It, I don't think it's too sentimental. Uh, I I do enjoy the the what's kind of going on with him and, and Catherine Zeta-Jones um, this movie to me and and, and actually I, I actually think it's a really great performance from Tom Hanks I, I actually think he's great in it you don't really get to hear him do a whole lot of voice work um, as an actor sometimes he will and it, it's slight this you know not quite Russian thing that he's doing I, I really like and and actually I find him quite charming in the movie I... Well it
1: gives him it gives him room to breathe because his, his character is from a country that doesn't exist. so he's doing this sort of random roundabout Eastern Bloc accent that doesn't have to be overly so specific. So I imagine that gives you a lot of freedom is yeah. that C- you can without wanting to dip your toe in the, the area of caricature you can you you have a lot of room to breathe in it without being grounded. Oh no, it's got to sound exactly like this yeah
0: because he's he is a He's a karkosia. You know, he's got this, this thing that he's doing. Um, yeah, it's no, it's I, I, I think he's great. I agree. And and if you put anything, I think if anybody else is, is the lead in this movie, this is probably number seven. Um, he just because he does Tom Hanks, for better or worse, brings he brings a baggage with him of his own. You know, he brings a certain quality and there is something so great about watching him you know and and it's it's a chance to let him be comedic again cuz he doesn't really get to do that very often so he gets to be kind of fun and 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 a goober and and whatever and i think that's all great for, for me it's just a series of bits though and as I, and i'm watching this movie and i'm like I, I don't i got to the end i was like why was this movie made and i I couldn't quite answer the question like it it didn't seem like it was trying to tackle any issues um as bad as AI is and it and it is my seven. i I at least felt like that's a movie trying to say something it, not in a great way, but i'm I'm watching this and I don't I don't understand. What are we doing? What why what why are we focusing on this on this Indian janitor? Why is Diego Luna somehow marrying what I forget what her name is? Um, uh, Zoe Saldana. Yeah, thank you. Like I, it, it's not that it's too sentimental. I just don't understand why any of this is happening. And I I and I, I don't give. I, I love. I do like the bit where he's he's only coming because he's trying to um finish a, a promise he made to his dad. I, I think that that's all there, and I don't. It's not that I don't like it, but the, the, at the end of it, I just don't. I I don't know why I'm watching the movie. I don't really like. I don't care about like because Stanley Tucci isn't really a villain, but he's kind of supposed to be, but but then again, he's not at all. Um, I, I just, yeah, no, I, he's a,
1: he's a guy. I I really appreciate Stanley Tucci, uh, Stanley Tucci in this because he is he's just a guy trying to do his job and to sort of uphold. A sort of level of integrity, but he's got this little thing that's just chipping away at that in in a sort of unseemingly and and innocent way. But we get to see him sort of pushed to his limit, and I think he does that in a very grounded way.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really he's you know where where we get Tom Hanks, you know, kind of get because he's also he's a foreign character and he's living in this you know in this crazy world where he's literally living in the international terminal of JFK. He can do kind of whatever he wants to. And yes, it is great to kind of get Stanley Tucci because, because in a way, Stanley Tucci is now like a caricature of himself, you know, kind of who he is in the hunger games. And he takes on some interesting roles later in his life. But yeah, and this, he really is just the straightforward guy. And he is, he's the straight man in the movie that we need to help build off this comedic timing of Tom Hanks. I I just, I, I was kind of scratching my head through the movie like I there's some bits that I liked, but at the end of it I just didn't get I didn't get really what was going on. I just it just felt like a movie. it's It seemed like hey, is Tom Hanks free? Yeah, oh, he's free. I'm just, I'm, I'm assuming Michael Kahn and Janusz komitsky and, and John Williams they don't they don't got anything going on. let's just let's just do something. let's just make a movie. They didn't- well,
1: it is. It is based partly. Well, it, I guess I should say it's more inspired by a true story. There was really a guy that lived at Charles de Gaulle for 18 years, and I think what this film improves upon is it actually, instead of sticking to to the, the the letter of the story and staying truthful, this film actually is an example of Hollywood. ...doing its thing and and molding a story to suit its own needs... ...and actually for the betterment of the story... ...because the real guy, uh, whose name was Miran Karami Nasiri... ...who was a, an Iranian national... Uh, ...as I said, he lived for 18 years in Terminal 1 of Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris... Um, ...he was later institutionalized... ...but uh, he was almost there. There, there... ...there was a situation where, yes, he couldn't enter France and he couldn't go back to iran either so that that is based in reality but that all got wrapped up fairly quickly and his it was really his choice to stay in the airport over a lot of sort of things that to him weren't inconsequential but to to the average person would seem like it was the name that was going to be on his passport he didn't want his actual name he wanted uh, uh, something else it was um he wanted to be called uh, to Sir Miran or something like that he wa- it was just it was like a really stupid inconsequential thing that kept him there and he was granted asylum at one point by both uh, Belgium and France and he just refused to leave the airport so it's it's like I said it's Hollywood going well, this is an interesting story, but the facts of it aren't going to make something all that entertaining so let's just run with something that is more entertaining
0: yeah. No, and I don't, and this is definitely a movie where, um, I, I, am glad they definitely improved upon it. And, um, I just, I just wish that I, I wish I was, there was something more going on. You know, there's not really a a story. I mean, or
1: not. Yeah. And, and the, the love story with, with Catherine Zeta-Jones, yeah, that definitely feels a little bit forced. But if you, if you lose that, I mean, you lose a huge chunk of the movie and it, there is. As I mentioned at the top of talking about this there is there are a few things about it that do seem really forced and it's also when you look at it in if you were to look at it in the grand scheme of all of Spielberg's work it doesn't really feel like a challenge and like we've talked about several times with Bridge of Spies this is something that almost seems to come easy to him and it doesn't feel like it's a challenge for either him or us the audience I'm I'm drawn to it because I I do find myself getting sucked into the sentimentality of all of it. And like you, the, the Tom Hanks performance, which feels a little more loose uh, and, and more akin to the stuff that he was doing in the eighties until in the nineties, he started doing stuff more serious like Forrest Gump and, and Philadelphia.
0: Yeah. You know, no, I, yeah, I agree. And I, I think for me, and it's tough cause I, I, I knew AI was going to be my seven and, you know, thinking about the terminal and crystal skull, I, I honestly at the end of at the end of the day I just was more entertained by Crystal Skull. And both of those movies they're they're not thinkers. And and that was fine. I could totally just watch them and I wasn't I wasn't blown away. I wasn't trying to you know look for any kind of subtlety or or you know hidden meanings or anything. It really wasn't about that. Uh I just I I just found myself a little more entertained by a I am by a movie with Crystal Skull than than Terminal. Now, to be fair, um, my bottom three are movies I probably will never watch again. Um, so so there's that too. <laughs> Dude,
1: that's that's interesting. I I find that the terminal, as I get older, this I maybe it's it's breaking into the, the the softer side of me. But it's it is definitely a film that I could find that I could revisit and may end up becoming one of those things that I just hey I need a comfort movie. Yeah, the terminal will do. Sure, sure. Um, okay,
0: so we're to number threes. I think we are indeed to number threes, okay, so my number three is War of the Worlds. and my number three is catch me if you can. okay, so let's so we'll talk we'll talk about War of the Worlds. Yeah, this movie just really works for me. Um so I, I, let me okay, let me I'll say one thing first and that I I buy I actually really bought Tom Cruise as kind of a a shitty dad. Uh, who is being st- who is now stuck in a shitty situation with his two kids and I, I don't know man I-, I really bought the relationships I really was into the character development of everybody I felt like I got relationships really quick based on a short amount of time and and I'm I-, I was I was you know I've seen this movie probably three or four times I saw it in theaters when it came out I'm in I'm in I'm in every step of the way. Now, if we had done a
1: list like this ten years ago, I think War of the Worlds probably would have been slightly higher for me, but i've I've found myself becoming a little bit disenfranchised about it now, on the list of things to appreciate about it, I'm with you like Tom Cruise is the number one thing to appreciate about this movie because it is something a little different for him. it's something a little more challenging, something more akin to, I'm not going to say it's as good as the work that he did in Born, in the Fourth of, Born on the Fourth of July and Rain Man, but it feels like a, a character that that's steeped in more existential conflict than some other characters that he's found himself playing, not just in this decade, but really over the course of his entire career. I love the idea of him trying to tackle a deadbeat dad, and that he doesn't get to be a hero. He really is an everyman in this who is struggling just to find a basic connection with his two kids. That to me is really intriguing.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, it's great to see himself challenging himself again. Well, I think I was going to say, I think, you know, with this and with minority report, you know, Spielberg gave, he, he allowed Tom, Tom Cruise to still be the action star that he is, but give him some real character motivation, you know? And even though I love these movies, you know, like the, the mission impossible movies and what he did in edge of tomorrow, there's there those are more those are those are fun movies because we get to go a look at him do all those things for real and then b it's like look at just like the crazy shit in general going on and i i find the last three Mission Impossible's and Edge of Tomorrow they're all great i i really enjoy those movies a lot but what sets apart War of the Worlds and Minority Report is we get to see him have a a real reason for the for the action you know and. Even when it's as simple as him, and I know there's uh, everybody jokes about Tom Cruise running in movies, but it, it's really interesting to see him in this where he's not trying to leap from building to building. He's literally like kind of running for his life. There's something more, you, yeah. You said every man. There's something more you can connect. Like it's hard to connect to, with Tom Cruise in any movie because he's one of the last real movie stars that we have. And he rarely plays realistic people. And I, I only mean that, like, you know, like Ethan Hunt is a, you know, he's a secret agent who can, who leaps from tall buildings and hangs on to moving planes, you know? Well, yeah, he's a, he's a superhero without without the cape. Yeah.
1: But yeah, no, this is, there is, you can't overstate it enough, the the everyman nature of this. And that somehow kind of makes the stakes feel a little higher. Now, the flip side for me is, as I just talked about in the terminal of Hollywood doing its thing and fudging a lot of the facts and doing what they need to do in order to serve the movie, I feel like that is... The the flip side is that War of the Worlds is almost too faithful to H.G. Wells' story here. And uh, uh, Liz, who either hadn't seen this before or, or didn't really remember seeing it, we got to the end of it because she watched, she watched most of it with me. She got to the end and she went, wow, well... What was the point? She's like, this is almost a pointless movie, and of course, shoehorning Morgan Freeman's narration in there as as bookends feels a little uh, feels a little dated in the sense that you know that's that's really now what Morgan Freeman is known for is is that voiceover work that he started with with this and and uh, March of the Penguins, but uh, in the book, yeah, that is pretty much how they're taken out. They're taken out by. The fact that they couldn't terraform our planet quickly enough and that they succumbed to the sort of pathogens in our air and in our water, which is, I mean, I don't mind an anti-climax, but in in this, it really does make the film feel a little forced and and flat in those last 10 minutes. And of course, I know my, my big issue... Uh, not just with that at the end, but also with his was with his kid coming back, and how that feels like, well, Spielberg doesn't have the balls to kill a kid in his movie. And I yeah. guess that's it's in the book. it's not his kid who miraculously comes back, but the the main character who is never named in the book, his his wife is separated from him during all of this, and she does inexplicably come back at the end of the book. So it's faithful to that to a, you know, to a degree that I think, doesn't necessarily serve the film, and I feel like they should have been a little ballsier and, and separated from H. G. Wells's text a little bit to give something that was more sort of impactful and, and, and a little bit more satisfying.
0: Yeah, it's funny because you talk about the sentimentality that you feel and connect with with *The Terminal*, and I feel, I connect with the sentimentality in this movie um and it's it's funny because i i I go i can go either way with that i do think that the sun coming back at the end of the movie does feel a bit deus ex, not even deus ex machina but just like yeah the way you phrase it like spielberg can't kill a kid in the movie um well i don't know we see him run up a hill that is literally engulfed in flames
1: like the beginning of apocalypse now like how how and why do you survive this
0: and and that that's tough. I don't know. And and I, I there are really small nitpicky things I don't I don't I think are interesting. Like everybody seems to be going through hell in the world and when they get to uh, the mom at the end Her and her her new husband and her parents seem like they've they've been like just had showers and have eaten a great meal like they seem fine you know they 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 look like they're ready to go to brunch or church or something and everybody else just looks like
1: shit and there are it's it's almost like the aliens said no 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 we can't fuck with Boston yeah we're we're gonna
0: we're gonna divert around Boston like we're not gonna (laughs) fuck with those people like and and if you want to look for small things like that and they're they're in there too but I. I just I I think the effects hold up. I really liked um uh uh you know this is before what's her name? Dakota Fanning. That's that's who that is, right? It's before she so This is this is the movie where
1: she really like
0: blew up. And yeah, her relation I... to her and Tom Cruise's dynamic
1: is Incredible! It is it is the best thing in the movie,
0: I, and I won't lie. I get teary-eyed where where she when she wants him to sing a song and he doesn't know the lullaby, and he starts singing "Little Deuce Coop, I'm like, oh, I, that is a great he's trying great so hard, and I I fucking love it. I really do, man. And I don't know, I I like I if it's, if it's just the story of if it's the, the the divorced dad trying so hard, or if it's and the the connection that he has with a daughter, and of course I have daughters, and like I just. I don't know. I I I and I and I I like this back in 05 when I saw it. And this is one that, uh, and and and, you know, I, I didn't pre rank these, but I definitely was surprised of where Munich and War of the Worlds fell on my list. Um, and I was being I'm, be I'm kind of surprised too. I had to be honest with myself, and I I I had to put War of the Worlds higher.
1: Now I'm I'm with you. When I saw it, I definitely liked it. Uh, it's funny, the Terminal and War of the Worlds uh, have flipped for me. I didn't think much of Terminal the first time I saw it, and I loved War of the Worlds, and those have seemed to trade places over the last uh, decade or so. Now, I don't yeah. want to move away from War of the Worlds just yet, because I do have a couple more things to, to say about it. Now, if we if we were to do this like a normal episode and have an unsung hero, for me, it's Tim Robbins.
0: Um, You know, I, I don't know that I would give him my unsung hero, uh, but, he, he, you, but it's like you need somebody like that, though in the movie
1: and and that character is is in the book as well that's another one of those moments that does stick rather faithfully to the book i think he it's almost it feels like he's almost expanding on the character from mystic river that sort of delusional paranoid sort of sort of character and i i think i think tim robbins ever since you know jacob's ladder has done he knows how to do that we know that he can do that as good as anybody and I, I love the dynamic between him and Cruz as Cruz starts to slowly realize that, oh, this guy isn't going to help us at all. And I have got to, he's a mad dog that I've got to put down. That's, that I think, other than the dynamic between him and Dakota Fanning, that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie where Cruz has to go into that room and shut the door. And, you know, he, he tells Dakota Fanning to just, you know, sing your song and, you know, cover your ears. So yeah. that is, that is Spielberg you know outside of things like like Schindler's List and and Munich but in his more mainstream films this is really Kubrick uh sorry this is Spielberg at his darkest. Yeah, yeah. Which which we don't we don't get to see in a lot of his his bigger films.
0: I would agree. I would agree. Yeah.
1: Now, would it surprise you to learn that uh Tom Cruise got a Razzie nomination for
0: this performance? Now was it for this perform? Because I know the Razzies will group per- group performances. Was there, was there something else he did in 05, or was it just for this? It was just for this. I, I and I, I I think that's uh, 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 a shitty move. I disagree. Yeah, I think wholeheartedly. I
1: think it's a little dismissive of them. Do you know who he lost to? It won't o- surprise you. O- five, o- 05, um
0: I don't know. Think th- think th- think the Adam Sandler crowd. Oh, God. Was this a uh, uh, uh,
1: European gigolo? Yeah, you got it, man. Well, it was the first one, male gigolo for, oh. for Rob
0: Schneider. Oh, D- do you speak a male gigolo came out in 05? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I. Right. There you go.
1: Yeah. And then I do, before we before we move on from more of the Worlds, I do have um, a sub list. Because, you know, on this show, if you've been listening for a while, you know that, that we love lists. We love lists. I love layup. We do. Yep. Yeah, well, we, and we love LAMP too. Um, so, the Cacheurs du Cinéma from yep. France, as we've mentioned before, we've, we've started talking about them a little more heavily since our 400 Blows episode. Uh, they did a list uh, at their, their 2010 awards. They did the best films of the 2000s. And would you like to hear that list? The best films of the
0: 2000s. Yeah. I, I would love to hear this list. So, this is their, their 10 best from the entire decade. Okay. Now, two questions. Two questions. Is this from the U.S. or is this world cinema? This is this is
1: world cinema. This okay. is from everywhere. Okay. The, the 10 best films from the entire world in in the 2000s, according to Cachures du Cinema. Okay. And you're going 10 to 1? I'm going 10 to 1.
0: Great. Okay. Let's hear it. So,
1: so aptly enough, number 10 is a film actually called 10 by Abbas. I I'm going to mispronounce his last name. Kiristami from Iran. Okay. Uh, I've I've no idea, I've never seen it. I would I would actually we've been debating doing a, a film of his because uh, he's got three in the book. Uh, so that's number ten is a film called Ten. Okay. Uh, at number nine we have Terence Malik's The New World. I I know you're big on that. I've not seen it since. I, I it do came love out. I do love that movie. I don't know if it's one of the ten best of the two thousands, but I do I am head over heels in love with that film. Okay. Uh, The reason why we're talking about this list in connection with War of the Worlds is they put War of the Worlds at number eight. Wow. War of the Worlds was the eighth best film in their minds of the
0: entire 2000s. Wow. That is is just insane. I like War of the Worlds, but those are some crazy French bastards, I gotta say. That is some
1: bold shit. (laughs) Uh, At number seven, we have a film called West of the Tracks, which is a documentary from China. Okay. At uh, number six, we have *The Secret of the Grain*, a film from France. At uh, number five, this will blow your mind as well: *History of Violence*. Wow. Okay. The David Cronenberg film.
0: I'm I'm not against that. I'm I'm okay yeah. with that being on the list. That seems high, but sure. That's that is a crazy bold choice that I really respect. Yeah. Uh,
1: at number four, we have a Bong Joon Ho film, *The Host*.
0: I. You know what I. I think I'm intentionally waiting for Parasite to be released on Criterion before I go, because I, I want to go on a big Bong Joon Ho tear, and I, I think I'm just waiting for the right time, because I want to revisit Parasite too when the time comes. Okay, the host, I've heard and, and good you've things. seen, and you've seen Snowpiercer as well, that, right? That is the only other Bong Joon Ho movie I've seen. Yeah, me as well, and I
1: fucking love Snowpiercer. Yeah, ditto, ditto. So number three is a movie I've not heard of from Thailand called Tropical Malady. I don't know if you've heard no. of that. Nope. Okay, this this is gonna blow your mind. Number one and number two, we're I think we're gonna spike the levels here in a second. Their second best film of the entire two thousands was Elephant. Oh
0: fucking god damn it! Yep. Ah, uh, what a. <laughs>
1: And listeners, please please go back and listen to our Elephant episode if you haven't. That's Even though it's a movie that we both clearly hated, I, it is an episode I'm very proud of. I think Me- we did explore some pretty important shit in that yes, episode.
0: Yes, I agree. And fuck that movie.
1: And this will come as no surprise because it's the number one on a bunch of lists when people talk about the best films of the 20, 21st oh century so is it, far. Is it Spirited Away? No, it's Mulholland Drive. Oh, okay. I'm okay with that. I really need to revisit Mulholland Drive. It's been, I, it's been the better part of a decade since I've seen it. I, and I, I think, remember, I remember really liking it.
0: Yeah. I, I definitely, I, I think I've mentioned, mentioned this to you off mic, but I'll say it again just in case I're, and I'm not going to say what it is, but I, I read something, I read an article or maybe an essay and it basically, it kind it, I, I watched it with a different mindset. Um, like I, I was actively thinking about something while watching that movie. And, Then as I was watching it, thinking about this this thought the entire time, it really changed. Like it becomes a movie that's still crazy and bizarre and David Lynchian, but but that the plot starts to form and it kind of makes sense in its own way. It's I yeah, I actually that's a that movie is crazy. I love I
1: love Mulholland Drive. Well, other than other than the straight story, I do think it is his most accessible film. Yeah, that's Yeah, I mean, God, have you seen Inland Empire? Uh, I have not. Holy fuck. I hear it's it's very long. It is very long. Painfully long. That's a movie I'm sure that you feel all three hours of.
0: It's three hours going on 12.
1: Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it's fucking... And
0: then one last
1: little factoid before we move on from War of the Worlds. I guess it was uh, Channing Tatum's second film. He has a very small uncredited role. He's credited as boy in church. Ooh. I don't even remember a church scene in War of the Worlds, but there you go.
0: I, I, I don't either. There you go. All right. <laughs> so okay. So uh, so that was my three. Your three was catch me if you can. Okay. So my two is Minority Report. Uh, my two is Minority Report as well. Okay. So let's let's talk about two. Let's talk about let's talk about Minority Report.
1: Minority Report is a film that gets better every time I watch it. Every single time I find something new and fascinating. This film is so layered and nuanced. And as I mentioned earlier when we were talking about AI, just the level of detail and the fact that this feels like a living, breathing world and that a lot of this technology, which some of it has already come true within the last decade, it, it feels like a very plausible world.
0: Well, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's funny because it feels like a plausible, a plausible world inside of a world that like couldn't possibly exist. I don't know if that makes any sense, but like, like the the technology, yes. But then you know we're talking about a world where there's these three people who can predict murders, right? And so, and and the worlds clash in a great way. They they really do support each other, and I think that to kind of go off what you just said, the detail that is paid to the technology of like you know go, walking into a room and just saying lights and the way that we can you know touch screen things so easily now when you blend that in well, the with the fact this, that we have ads that talk to us yeah but the fact that we can blend that now with this idea of these three people floating in this you know this liquid that essentially keeps them alive who can predict murders like the 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 detail of the technology supports the fact it supports the the premise that these three beings can can predict future crime and again we get we get tom cruise uh in in a role where he's allowed to have a character and like feel feelings you know and um i mean i this was it's funny this was my in during my i don't like colin farrell days um and now that I've, cause I, cause I did, I, until in Bruges flipped me around and now I, I, I think he's great and it's, it's funny to go back. No, like, I, to,
1: I remember I had to, I almost physically had to twist your arm to go see that film with me.
0: I know. And I'm so glad you did. Uh, but it's funny to see him now, like to, to watch it now appreciating him and, and, and actually really liking what he's doing in the, in the role. And I gotta say, I mean, and I know, you know, not too long ago we lost Max von Sydow, um, yeah, but, uh, that was. I mean, he lived a, a good long life, but man, that was a, a big blow to cinema. He, I mean, he he looked the same for three decades. Man, he it, it's a it's crazy. That was he Swedish? Is that what he was? Yeah, he, from from Sweden. Yeah, like, well, that, that Swede took care of himself. I mean, yeah he he lived a quite a long life with uh an an impeccable career. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's he's great in it. It's one of those things too where now that we've seen it a jillion times, you know, we know the twist is coming, but even then I'm, you know, I'm watching this and I'm going, this motherfucker is, is pulling this off real well, real well. Oh, uh, the, the character of Max von Sydow
1: or just yeah. Spielberg? The,
0: the, the character of, of Max von Sydow. Like, like I don't, even though I know that he's going to be the reason why this turns at the end, you're, you're watching this and all the seeds are planted. Like it's like, you believe it when it happens at the end, but, when you when you're trying to like watch his his progression through the movie he doesn't do anything that over the top where you'd go well, this motherfucker is trying to pull a fast one no 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 it like it is a surprise it is like when he shoot i mean you know spoiler alert for a movie that's almost 20 years or uh, yeah 20 years old when he shoots Colin Farrell that's still pretty you know cuz and melissa gasped you know i I know she's seen it but like she's like oh no i'm like yeah fuck cuz you don't see it coming it really comes yeah, out no, nowhere. Yeah, no, it's
1: great. And you you can't help but be charmed by Max von Sydow, even when he's playing an evil piece of shit. I yeah. mean, as bad as the movie is, I adore him in Flash Gordon. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen Flash Gordon. Oh, man, you are you are in for a treat, sir. Ooh. Get yourself uh, three or four bottles of wine and, and <laughs> pop that sucker on. That is a primo <laughs> 80s cheese, man. With a soundtrack by Queen, you got Timothy Dalton in there. I mean, you've seen oh. Ted, right? They reference it a whole oh, bunch. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's it's as bad and as glorious as you would expect it to be all at the same time. Yummy. Yummy. Um, Brian Brian Blessed as the Hawkman. Fucking brilliant. <laughs> and actually Richard O'Brien in a small role as well. Oh.
0: From, uh, from Rocky Horror fame. That's um, right,
1: man. Riff Raff.
0: Yep. You know, yeah, I just a Minority Report is a and and you know and I forget I really wish I, I could remember specifically what happened but something early on I, it, I, it was either myself or Melissa asked a question like well wait 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 so what about this and then like almost instantly we were like oh well there's the answer I think if, I think and I'm gonna talk this through maybe you can help me out figure you know in terms of of what it was but so it's the opening it's like the first murder that Tom Cruise has to stop the husband who comes back in with the the scissors. And almost, you know, there was a question. I was like, well, how does he know? Like, why can't we figure out where he is instantly? And then, oh, it, it's a pretty common name and there's enough in the area. It's like, oh, okay. And like, it, even a small detail like that is, is, is nice to make us go like, because we want to jump ahead and be like, no, 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 just how, can, how do you not know where to find him? And then they do that little quick search and there's like, well, there's three of him or seven of him or whatever it was in this in this area. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah great. Um, and yeah, I just feel like this movie has a lot of, a lot of specificity that really helps fill the world. I also, this this movie also has Peter Stramari. So, I mean, how do you? Oh,
1: as the doctor and that, that moment still grosses me out because the, he's sick and he does that moment where he sneezes and it is just a fountain of snot coming it's, out of his face that,
0: it, oh, it's <laughs> who there's no way to fake that. That is disgusting and real. And I, I mean, and then yeah, the, the got the whole scene with the spiders and he's under the ice water and I, I it's gripping and compelling and, 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 you don't know, take off the bandages before 12 hours or you will go blind and you know I and we mentioned that John Williams did the score for all of these movies um but like a really understated and supportive score in this i i really like the music in this i think
1: it's of i think it's the best of the seven uh, from this it, decade i
0: i don't i don't
1: i'll save that no for I, you. I I know I know you're going cash me if you can that's okay <laughs> and that is that is a at a phenomenal score as well. Um
0: yeah I do I don't know I Minority Report is a is a movie that you know when I first saw it I was like this is good. And I think I was too young and I think I just glommed on to the 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 effects and the action which which works really well. I love those I love those guns that you have to like whip around and like it it knocks the person back. I love that whole, like, kind of chasing the car factory is just fucking awesome. I really like that. Yeah, that's solid. And the, the stuff in the alleyway as well with the jetpacks,
1: absolutely love that.
0: Yeah. Um.
1: The, the idea of the, the six sticks, I think, is really interesting. Yeah. Like, the batons that will make you throw up. I think that's that's really cool. I dig that. Um, how do you feel about me floating the idea that this is Tom Cruise's best
0: performance? How do I? Well even over magnolia
1: Yeah, even over magnolia. Well, then I disagree. I I, I don't think it is. I'm I'm oh. going to say for me, his, <laughs> I I I just no no no, I'm just wondering how you would feel about if somebody were to come to you and say that uh, this is Tom Cruise's best performance. I, I think, like what do you what do you do with that? You counter with with what magnolia. I say, yeah.
0: What I would say to them is is I think you're wrong, but I don't dislike your choice
1: yeah it it is a great performance for me i think i i think it easily i i haven't prepared a top five but i think i would go as far as almost to put it at number three just off the top of my head right now i think i would go uh ronkovic in born on the fourth of july then
0: magnolia then this i think makes a really solid top three i mean i i would say maybe these three are those three that you just said were probably in my top five somewhere um and, and, and I mean, and it's funny cause I, I don't, that's tricky. Cause I also, I, li- I do like him in Jerry Maguire. I do like, uh, I do like Dan Caffey in A few good men too. Um, and then, and then it's like, do you pick any of his really, really early stuff where he's just plain smarmy, charming Tom Cruise? You know, do you, do you avoid that? I also think he's great in eyes wide shut. I mean, fuck. And that's the thing. He does he, is, he does. he is phenomenal in Eyes Wide Shut. You know what else I, I just rewatched
1: uh, right after I finished this big Spielberg rewatch was The Firm, the Sidney Pollock film. Yeah, I do want to. I, I need to rewatch that, too. That That is a goddamn great film. It was a little long, but it's amazing. And Gene Hackman just absolutely shines in that.
0: Oh, Gene Hackman. We want you back, Gene Hackman.
1: We we really do. That Welcome to Mooseport is not a movie to go out on. <laughs>
0: That that's that's
1: not how you end a career like that. That's true. That's true. I agree. Uh, that is it is a real shame, but I'm I'm sure retirement and writing those novels that he's writing is is quite comfortable. So I can't I can't blame him. It's like Sean Connery who just wants to play golf and do whatever it is he's doing. I I can't blame him for not
0: wanting to come back. Sure. Um. So I I've I've said I've said my piece with Minority Report. I think it's I think it's great and it really is. I I mean, I think if we were to do a top five underrated underrated Spielberg movies I think I think this is in there that might it might even be one I don't know but this I, I mean I think it makes a strong case for being number one I've got
1: I've got two more points and I wanted to support my the, the idea of this being one of Tom Cruise's best performance if not his best with sure. the scene where he finally confronts Leo Crow yep that scene is even if you say that in this film it overall it's not his best performance, that scene might be. The best work he's ever just that individual scene might be the best work he's ever done.
0: That's great. I mean, and it he goes through all of the emotions. I mean, you know, figuring out who he is and and like realizing that this guy is in front of him, and then like you know his his explosion is is totally justified and believable, and then him you know trying to read him his Miranda rights, fighting through tears. It's it's great. It's it's very compelling, and you got Samantha I, Morton in the background. I'll confess to you, I.
1: I tear up every single time, every time. I mean, it, it it really gets me. I feel that and not being a father, I still like, I, I feel that I feel the weight of him. Just the, the anguish of, of not knowing and then thinking that you do know and reacting to that. And how how could this man do this? How could this man take my son from me? It just it gives me goosebumps, you know, just yeah. just talking about it right now.
0: I and there is something again so painfully realistic about the idea of of coming up out of the when, when it comes up out of the pool and the sun's not there, it's just like I I mean there are times where I'll take the girls to the park and I'm watching one and I look back and like like you know, like I'll be watching Sophie because she's a bit younger and I go back to where Stella was and there's a moment where your heart stops and you realize, oh, she's just moved ten feet in a different direction and she's fine. But like <laughs> I got that's I I don't know if I've ever said this, said this to you before but like watching your children do anything in a public place is more exhausting than running a marathon the mental drain it takes to watch your kids I'm so exhausted watching them it and not because I physically did anything but because like th- th- you go through like 30 to 50 moments like that when you turn your head and you can't instantly see them it's fucking nuts and so there's something that yeah, as a dad, I totally click. I can click in with him on that.
1: Well, keep keep running, keep doing that cardio, man, so that you know <laughs> your kids don't give you an early heart attack. <laughs> oh, that was that was the one thing I forgot to mention was I, I wanted to find something more positive to say when we were talking about War of the Worlds, and and now that we're in Minority Report, I guess it makes sense as well. But there are there are two things that Cruz and Spielberg like. Cruz nobody runs like Tom Cruise in movies, and nobody does aliens like Steven Spielberg in movies. That was yeah. that was one of my, my actual my finer my, my last points that I missed on War of the Worlds is I do think he he blows his wad a little too early, and I do think we see the aliens too early and too often. Well, there you in go. War of the Worlds, yeah. So, I don't know how you felt about that. I had anyway. I had uh, I had one last thing before we move on from a minority report as well. There's this theory out there uh that the end once Tom Cruise goes he's arrested and he's put into those tubes with with the other pre crime arrestees that he the rest of the film is a vision. Because they talk about, you know, the the Tim Blake Nelson character, which is a great little cameo. I yeah. love Tim Blake Nelson and this is yeah. such a, a different and weird movie to see him in uh as the guy that sort of runs the 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 quote unquote prison that they have there. Uh he talks about how supposedly it's, you know, you, you see things, you, you relive your crime over and over again, but you also have vi- these, these other visions and it's supposedly quite peaceful. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering how you felt about the end potentially being a vision and that he doesn't actually get out. Because a lot of people I had read, a couple of critics anyway, had read that they felt like the end was a cop-out, was it Steven Spielberg doing what he always does and making the happy, fluffy, family-friendly ending. Is this a better film? If everything is a vision and and Anderson doesn't come back to shut down pre-crime.
0: I definitely think it's a more bold choice. Um, It's funny. I've never I've never watched it with that in mind. Um, I mean, my my instant reaction is it probably is. I mean, but I also think that we like, you know, I, I think we me and you like bolder choices like that and Spielberg isn't necessarily a director who does that I, I think he makes bold stylistic choices but I think when it comes to storytelling that's not necessarily where he shines um but I think that's interesting i I and it's so funny I think I think there's just like one man one subtle shot or one s- like slip of a story thing or you know something would help um to, to empower that choice you know i mean i'm just trying to think of, like it, probably something probably something very subtle would help for that to be um to to just uh to just reinforce that being a potential ending i think that's interesting i i would love to see that or
1: or yeah sorry. i i like it too i mean i'm i'm in the camp that think i've talked to a lot of people that think that the end of american or that all of american psycho is all in his head and I always counter with the argument: Well, if it's all in his head, why are we here? And I that that is also my my sort of gut reaction to the end of Minority Report as well. I'm in I'm, I'm in two minds about how I feel about it, because I do really love the ending. I do love that he gets to have the confrontation with, uh, the Lamar Burgess character, and he does get to expose this you know this this world that he built, in order to save himself. He has to tear it down. I like that idea, but. It also, yeah, it does unfortunately lead to the happy, comfort, popcorn, family-friendly ending that Spielberg is known for. So yeah. I'm, I'm in, I, I've got a foot in both camps when it comes to the idea of it being a vision.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I totally think that's interesting. So our number ones, yes. So, uh,
1: w- what do you want to talk about first? Catch me if you can or Munich. Well, let's let's talk about Munich first, if that's okay with you, so that we can end with something a little bit lighter. Sure. So, your number one is Catch Me If You Can. Mine is Munich. Now, I'm going to say something very, very bold here. I okay. think Munich is a better film than Schindler's List. I think it's a more important film than Schindler's List. Oh, okay. I, I disagree I, with you. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I, and and that's okay I, I there's a lot of people that have disagreed with me about that I I don't want to take anything away from Schindler's list at all I mean I, I couldn't possibly if I tried it is a magnificent film it's it's beautiful and disturbing all at once and and it does have incredibly important things to say and I don't want to take anything away from history at all Munich I think deals with something that's a little heavier. Thematically, as far as and I want to tread very carefully here, um, it's what it, what it says about what vengeance, blind vengeance can do. To if you whether you believe in a soul or not, I mean I don't, but what what it does to quote unquote your soul and and your psychological state of being and the way that you interact with with other human beings. I mean, there's that that wonderful quote, I believe it was Gandhi, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And I, I do believe that we, as not just this country, but as the world as a whole, we have allowed blind vengeance to go sort of unpunished for decades now. Now, that's not to say that that conflict now, I don't have a leg to stand on, I don't live in that part of the world, but I, I, I do think that there hasn't been enough oversight when it comes to those sort of situations in the world and and I walked out of Munich the first time so I saw it in theaters January of 06 and I walked out and I went Jesus Christ what am I supposed to do with my life now I had seen something that challenged
0: everything that I thought about the world I mean it is an impactful movie and it's also it it's it's a it's a great movie um I appreciate um, everybody's performance in it I mean easily the best work that Eric Banna has ever done
1: um oh well that's that's without question yeah. his
0: his reaction to um uh hearing his his daughter on the phone is quite quite compelling and um easily ripped uh Melissa and I apart <laughs> that scene is 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 very very well done yeah that's that's some tough
1: stuff um i I really love all the supporting cast in this, not just Eric Bana, but I mean, it's a great role oh, for, is. for Daniel Craig, who gets to be a bit of a doubting Thomas throughout the whole thing. He's very big and boisterous and doesn't have a problem uh, voicing his opinion. I really, really love uh, Matthew Kasovitz as Robert, the, the toy maker, the guy that, that makes the bombs for them. Yeah, I think he's a, a
0: sort of underrated character in this movie. Uh, And, and, yeah, and I, and I, like, if we were doing Unsung Hero, I would definitely be giving mine to Kieran Hines. I think he is fucking great in it. He's just so compelling to watch on screen. Um,
1: And Jeffrey Rush, man. Jeffrey Rush is great in this movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Would you like to know why it's ranked so low for me? I, I definitely would, yeah. Okay. So, you know, I'm watching this movie and. I'm in it, like I'm in it from the beginning. I'm really liking it, and you know, when I was thinking about this list before, kind of rewatching them, I, I kind of, I felt like I knew, I always knew what my one was going to be, and I thought maybe, and I kind, of, I guess I kind of was assuming that you know, two and three were up for grabs between Munich and Minority Report, and I, because I'd seen Minority Report a bunch, and I hadn't seen Munich since you know, 0506, you know, when it was going through its big Oscar run, so. I'm watching it and I'm like, and as, as it's about halfway through and I'm like, this could be, this is, you know, this is two or three, this is easily two or three. I don't know where it is yet. Um, I gotta say that the, the two or three minute scene where Eric Banna is having sex with his wife and we are watching the, uh, um, the, the, uh, the, the um, Olympic athletes being gunned down in the helicopter is one of the worst cut worst shot worst storytelling over dramatic scenes I've ever seen in anything when he, when when Eric Bana whips his head up and that explosion of uh, what I assume is sweat but I of whatever the fuck it is goes up in the air in slow motion I this was a moment where I thought Spielberg doesn't trust us enough to get what's going on. And uh, I, I, I thought like I, we, we in a way I, I, it's like, did we, I don't think we needed to see, I, I don't think we needed to see um, the Olympic athletes massacred in the planes um, or in the helicopters. We know where it's going. We, I don't think, I think that final montage of just that alone, we don't need. And I d I I, I I don't know how the I don't know how anybody involved with Munich let that scene of Eric Banner fucking his wife like that stayed in the movie. It is it is awful. And and basically the reason this ranks so low is this just left a fucking horrible taste in my mouth. And this movie is like mostly the, the, mostly because
1: of those last five minutes? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And now and, I can't I can't disagree with
1: you that it is a sort of unnecessarily stylized. And I do, that does resonate the, the Spielberg not trusting us enough to, to know what's going on. But I do think it is important. I don't know. I mean, there are, there's a myriad of ways you could have done it, but I do think it's important to have a scene like this to remind us why it is that he has traded in his integrity and, and traded in the, the, uh, sort of lighter side of his soul for this this weight of vengeance I, I think it's important to ha- to have a reminder of of how he has become this sort of delusioned and
0: and, and paranoid man now are you are you talking that, specifically about seeing the Olympic athletes and and their demise yeah I think it's I think it's important
1: okay. that we be reminded of what set this set this this this, this Decades long, because I mean, the movie does play a little hard and loose with some of the facts, and it condenses a whole lot of shit simply because it has to. I mean, I think the most egregious uh, omission is the Lilyhammer affair, which, if you if you don't know what that is, this uh, there and there were, by some accounts, multiple teams out there, not just these five. Even though the Avner, I do Avner in air quotes, the guy that was the inspiration for the book *Vengeance* uh, by George Jonas, claims that there were only five. Uh, the Lilyhammer affair was uh, when they were looking for Salami, the guy that they're they're looking for at the end, the the number one guy that they want. Uh, uh, a Moroccan waiter was uh, killed instead of Salami. He was this Moroccan waiter was falsely identified as Salami, and you know he was sort of gunned down and and stopped the, what was called Operation uh, Hand of God. It, it it put the the operation on hold for a while. So. Leaving that out, I think is is kind of a misstep. But um, w- anyway, sorry. What I was circling back to is that it's um, is that in in a, in a way I'm I'm agreeing with you is that yes, it's it's maybe not shot in the best way, but we we do need to. Oh man, I'm sort of retreading all over myself here, but we do we do need to know why it is that these men traded their souls for violence
0: well and can i can i i want to maybe maybe i want to clarify something i guess i don't i don't i'm not totally against showing the demise of the olympic athletes i think cross-cutting it with what's going on with eric banna was like the like i like not just the wrong choice but like the exact opposite of a good choice like it's 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 just doesn't make any any sense and 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 we get i i mean I totally get that Eric Bana is 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 going through paranoia. I mean, we get that when he goes into the embassy and just asks basically asks for Jeffrey Rush's character and, and you know, he's and he's paranoid when he's walking with his kid and I I get it. Like and that's all great storytelling. I get what's going on. I just I I <laughs> this I'm going to use a big word here, but it's unforgivable it for me it really it took this movie from a two to a four in in the ranking it took the movie from a great movie to a good movie in my in in my opinion and it's it's man i just wish we could have gone I, I i yeah i don't know i it it, it just does it, it really left just a a a Bad no, taste I in my I, I see it. I
1: see it, and I can't. I can't one hundred percent disagree with it. There is there is probably a better way to do it, but it, for me, it wasn't enough to detract from the other two and a half hours that that preceded it.
0: Yeah, and and that's why it like, and and it, it was kind of a tough like you know putting it to four. It was it was tough because I it, I didn't want to necessarily take away from everything that they they're building to the the way the group acts with each other and all, every single one of the missions and. And the great acting work and, and directing and everything going on before then. But it's it's tough. It, it it's a tough ending. And it, it just proved to me, and I, I I just know that I this is who I am, but how you end a movie is is almost as important as any other part of the movie. Um and, and that Well last absolutely.
1: I mean the the last thing the last thing you need to, to walk out of the cinema with is, is it it needs to leave the lasting impression because
0: by very definition, it's the last thing you see. Yeah. So that's for, for those reasons is why it's as, it's as low as it, as it was. Do you feel that it was robbed at all at the Oscars?
1: <laughs> so it was nominated for, for picture editing oh. director adapted screenplay and music. Now, yes, uh, I
0: I know. So, so this was, so this year it was Munich Capote, good night and good luck, Brokeback mountain and uh crash, which one, um, yeah. I- so
1: it it lost it lost uh, director, adapted screenplay, music to
0: Brokeback, and mm-hmm. then it lost uh, editing and picture to Crash. Yes. Um. Do I think it was robbed? No, I don't. Um. And I and I'm one of maybe 14 people who still stand by Crash. Uh. I still think it was the right movie to win. Um. That's not a knock against Brokeback Mountain or Munich. Um, I, I actually think that crash has something to say, uh, despite the, ma- the majority of people thinking that it's just overly dramatic schlock. Um, I, I do like that movie. Um, I, well, I, I, I do have respect for
1: crash. I'm not a massive fan of it. Um, I'm, I'm not advocating that Munich should have won picture. I certainly think it should have won director instead of Ang Lee for, for broke
0: no I, I there's something about the the way that that broke back a shot that i really i really like um and again and and i again i'm coming from i'm coming off of my my sunday night rewatch of of munich where um i'm still stuck with the the the, the editing and directing choices of that of that those 3 or 4 minutes i just i just can't i can't not get it out of my head it it really I mean, I'm I'm so pissed that it's in that movie. It's so it yeah. <laughs> I know I'm just repetitive, but it's... Well other than
1: that, do you how how would you feel about me saying that it's it's Spielberg's most daring film? Apart from that, that ending. I mean that in itself is daring, but it's daring in a different way. But I think it's Spielberg's most most complicated film. I think it's him you know, I... he's he's a director that's spoken out uh he's he's spoken about being ashamed of being Jewish and it wasn't until you know, much later in his life, that he started to 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 come to terms with that and accept that and embrace that, and I think this is him. You know, dealing with with his religion and and what's been done to his people in in a different way than he did in in Schindler's List. I think it's certainly what it's trying to say is far more complicated than than Schindler's List, and I think Spielberg was an interesting director known for more family-friendly, big-budget pictures, I think it was a a really daring choice to try and take this story on because it is so layered and nuanced and complicated and history
0: has has hidden certain things and complicated others. I mean, I think I can... I think I could say right now that I I would say it's his most daring to film. I I do think that after, especially after Munich, it's a lot of, I mean it's a lot of safe choices. It's a lot of, it's, it's familiar territory. It's retreading. It's, it's family things. Um, And, and as compared to Schindler's list, um, we're, we're obviously you're getting the violence. We know when we know what's going to come with that. Um, it, In, in uh Munich, it's, it's really different. And I think it's, I think it's shot in a different way too. And I, I would say it's, I would say probably it's as maybe it's most bold and daring movie. Yeah. I think I could agree with that.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad that even though you don't like the ending, I can still I can still get you to agree with me on that. So you want to talk about Catch Me If You Can? Uh, before we do, uh, one last thing about Munich is we've been talking about the Kansas City film critics. Oh, indeed, uh, we have. On certain episodes, uh, they gave Munich uh, film director and adapted screenplay. So big shout out to those those people in Kansas City. You got good, good taste. Those good Kansas City folk.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: All right. So your number one catch me if you can indeed and what a goddamn fun movie this is so this was this was my number three under munich and minority report yeah but i mean this this film does make a strong case for for climbing a little higher on my list
0: yeah it's i this was one of the i i mean my family you know growing up my family never went to go see movies on christmas day that was never a thing that we did um but I, I don't know why for some reason i remember me and my sister going to the Stanwood cinema christmas night after we had gotten back from you know the day of, of of festivities or whatever and and man i i this movie will never not be good to me um it's it's leo kind of you know at at his you know he's at that age where you can't quite tell how old he is but he does play convincingly enough he, he plays a teenager um and and i mean I, I mean he's great hanks is great i i really do love the direction of spielberg in this movie um that john williams score is great we don't we i don't really associate spielberg with opening credits but i do love the little it's like an it's it's an overture it's you're you're seeing just like what when you when you see a musical and you hear the overture you're going to hear bits of every song that you're going to hear in the musical and and in the credits, you see those, like, when he goes from being, you know, a doctor to a lawyer, we see him doing, like, the way that that's, it's such a fun opening way to get in there. It, I, I, wow, dude, I, I could, I, I could ramble on about everything about this movie. I love that it's, that it's got that based on a true story thing. I love, Chris Walken, just fucking heartbreaking in this movie. He
1: is Well, Abagn- the real Abagnale has claimed that about 80% of the movie is true. So I mean that's that's the best endorsement you're gonna get right there. Yeah. I mean who knows? I mean he is he is a con man, so Very who true. knows how much of that is true, <laughs> but
0: and there's something and I, I think I just like I just like how the story progresses. I like how it unfolds, you know, that that it doesn't really become he doesn't become a con man essentially to to like to like hurt people. He it it's his way of kind of a just rebelling against his, rebelling and uh, and not accepting his parents getting a divorce. Um, every time he comes back to talk to Christopher Walken and like you know has see you like this you know or I'm gonna I got you tickets you're gonna fly first class and he just it's like and I get that we forget that he's so young even when he's doing that but just something so heartbreaking of not being able to see what's in front of you and that in a real way all of this is happening because he just he couldn't cope with real life. There's something I find really compelling to, uh, about that.
1: That's one of my, my favorite. I th- I think actually my favorite scene in the movie is the last time that he talks to his dad and he says, ask me to stop. He's like, you can, you got him on the ropes. You can't stop now. And then it's the repeated line of where are you going tonight? Somewhere exotic. I love, I love that his dad won't condemn what he's doing. And because his dad won't do that, then he has to keep going. Yeah. He won't stop until somebody like like most criminals, I mean, they want to get caught. He won't stop until somebody makes him stop.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that that is the most heartbreaking thing about his character. And this is also the turning point for Leo. This is the big turning point in his career where he starts making the good choices. I mean, he we have in two thousand two we have the uh, the one two punch of this in Gangs in New York. Well, and I know there's a lot of mixed opinions about gangs in New York, but I think he's I think he's incredible in that. I was going to say... And I think working with Scorsese is is the turning. Working with Spielberg and Scorsese, those are the things that, that turn him around and is what I've started to call the sort of McConaughey effect of going, do I really want my the rest of my career to be this? No, I need to start making good choices and leaving behind a better legacy for myself.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to say that this film contains three people who, who had great one-two punches because... So Spielberg had had Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report, like you said, Leo had this and Gangs of New York, and Hanks had this and Road to Perdition. Those were all 2002 double features. And I, what a what a great double
1: feature that is! Catch Me If You Can and Road to Perdition. Ugh. Like Road to Perdition again is another movie.
0: Every time I watch it, it gets better. I I I think you know how how highly I hold that movie in my heart. I mean that's that's probably a top twenty all all time all time for me. It's it's high up there. I fucking love that movie. Um, and, and it plays into all the things I love cuz I
1: love that prohibition, the gangsters, the cars, the guns, all of that. I love that shit.
0: Yeah. Um so I mean so yeah, so I mean catch me if you can it, it just it, for me it has everything working for it. Um the performances, the story itself, um I do love and just the way that the camera you know cuz before ai is is the film before this and uh and, and but like there's something about my the way the camera actually like the the literal way the camera moves in minority report and, and catch me if you can it's not it's like Spielberg's style changes a bit and i don't know what the actual change is but there's a clear like if you look at like the the stuff from the late 90s and ai and you look at these first two films it just it moves different and he's working with the same people but there is something stylistically that happens um i'm thinking particularly of when uh the the agents are raiding his uh, i think his place in florida and it's just following the guns and it just the way it just kind of floats in and it follows everybody and i just i don't know man i this movie is is uh, i feel like you know at, people at the top of their game spielberg hanks DiCaprio walk in, um, and and for me, because I don't, because I don't, I don't hold a lot of the Spielberg classics in as high esteem as everybody else. So, you know, I I I I would I I think I could safely say now that you know, the ones that people like this, or um, excuse me, like um, Jaws and Raiders and Close Encounters and E.T. None of those would make my top five Spielberg. I know this, and this does this. Catch well, hearing can't...
1: hearing you say that about Jaws kind of hurts my heart a little bit, but I, that's okay. Uh, I can accept that. I'm
0: so sorry. I'm so sorry. But but it's true. But I didn't grow but up with it. This is
1: certainly other than Jaws. This is certainly one of his most playful films. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I just I don't know. I there's just I I end up doing this so much. I just talk over myself. I don't have anything negative to say about this movie. Oh, and, and neither do I. I mean, it's it's no, just a, a total I was gush looking for fest you to for me. The anything. supporting
1: cast and everything, the style, John Williams' music. I mean, it's it, not just not just as it one of Spielberg's most playful movies. It's one of John Williams' most playful scores. I, I'm head over heels in love with it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Hey, you want to hear a joke?
1: Yeah, no, I'd love to hear a joke
0: from you. <laughs> I I love that. And going back to the every P, like a PC13 gets one 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 fuck you or one 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 f bomb. I love that. he That's so great. I, I appreciate that moment so much when he gets to tell the joke. <sighs>
1: and I'm I'm glad that Spielberg decided to direct this himself cuz the short list of directors that were were attached to it at one point David Fincher, Gore Verbinski, Cameron Crowe, Miloš Forman and Lassie Hellstrom, none of them would have made a movie as fun of the as
0: this. No, no, and and Gore Verbinski would have ruined it. Oh, absolutely, and I, I honestly, I think Cameron Crowe would have as well. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't, that, I don't know how that would have felt. I'm, I'm not. I mean, Gore Verbinski is the one I outright. I'm like, no, I can't, I can't get on board with that one. <laughs> so, Ian, are you ready to hear the definitive ranking? You want, we'll, we'll, we'll what? go through them individually first. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so uh, going from seven to one, my Seven. So uh, I go AI, The Terminal, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Munich, War of the Worlds, Minority Report, and Catch Me If You Can. And my seven goes AI,
1: Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, War of the Worlds, The Terminal, Catch Me If You
0: Can, Minority Report, and Munich. Okay. So uh, doing the math. Here we go. This is the a thousand and one by one. Definitive ranking of Spielberg's films in the 2000s. Number seven, no surprise, AI. Number six, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Number five, The Terminal. Number four, War of the Worlds. Number three, Munich. Now, doing the average Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report got the same. However, because we agreed on where minority report is, I think that number 2 should be catch me if you can and number 1 should be minority report. I am totally okay with that. Okay, so there you go. So that there that's it. That's our top 7 ranking the seven films of uh, Spielberg in the 2000s.
1: Yeah, I'm I I'm pretty happy with that list. I'm okay with Munich at number 3. I understand that it's
0: it's definitely not for everybody. <laughs> well, it's I, I yeah, yeah, it, it, I'm definitely not trying to say that it's not a well-made movie because it absolutely is. I just definitely took issue with the particular few minutes of that movie.
1: So I'm I'm really enjoying doing these uh, these these full rankings. Uh, hopefully, our listeners are as well. We've got another one in the pipeline. It might be a little while before you hear it, but um, I don't want to maybe I don't want to spoil it. Maybe we'll we'll save it as a surprise. Yeah, I think of I, who we've I, got I, planned next
0: yeah i think that sounds good um so uh so again yeah yes thank you for listening um and these will be coming back uh please keep supporting the show um uh, you can find us on itunes and google play and spotify and Stitcher and all those great places you can support us at patreon.com slash a thousand and one by one hit us up on facebook and on twitter um and uh please stay tuned next week we haven't we haven't visited a western in a while. And so I think we're going to go back to the old West and, uh, and check out one of those. Um, and we may just have a guest, uh, on the show of which we've been guests on his show before. So
1: we'll very uh, excited to have Mike from cinemas joining us for, for this Western. I know it's going to
0: be a fun discussion. Yeah, it should be great. Um, and until then I am Adam and I am Ian and we will see you next week.